Well, this morning, we're in the fifth part of a series that we have called Christian Confusion, and we've been talking about the fact that you can call yourself a Christian and yet do anything and believe just about anything that you want because the Bible doesn't even tell us what it is. Uh, Christian was a term that the uh, first century people that were outside of the Jesus movement used to describe Jesus followers, but it's not the term that Jesus used or that they used for each other. The term that Jesus used was disciples. And the reason we're talking about this is because we didn't start this church to uh, win people to a denomination or win people to a particular political party or political way of thinking. Uh, We don't exist to win people to a religion. Uh, Rather, we exist to help people uh, to win people to something much bigger, and especially and specifically as it pertains to Jesus. But the challenge that we fact is in our country for a long time, uh, far too many people have settled for, I'm a Christian which has jaded many people to the church and ultimately because, uh, to Jesus. Because on every, every single issue, whether it's political or financial or moral or family or even war, you will find Christians on both sides of everything, every issue, because you can describe and define Christian uh, any way you want. It's why we have Christians in the ever-Trump camp. It's why we have Christians in the never-Trump camp. It's why we have Christians in the build-that-wall camp. We have Christians that are appalled by that. We have Christians that protest for LGBT plus rights. We have Christians that protest against them. We have Christians that are pro-life. We have Christians that are pro-choice. And again, you can be on on every side of every issue and still call yourself a Christian. But when you open the New Testament, as we've done, and to ask the question, what does it look like? What does it look like to become and be a follower of Jesus? It's terrifyingly clear. And the reason that we're talking about this over several weeks is because I'm convinced that if we don't get this right, if we don't get this right, we will be part of making Jesus and the church unnecessarily resistible. We launched this community two and a half years ago, specifically the way we said it, is to help people become fully devoted followers of Jesus. This last year, we adjusted our wording just a little bit to people helping people find and follow Jesus. We launched with a heart that beat for people who are already Jesus followers, but not just for people who are already Jesus followers but with a passion for people outside the church, outside the Jesus movement, to create a church that they would love to attend and engage. For those that uh, maybe one time they walked away because for whatever, whatever reason at that point in their life, they weren't interested in doing uh, life or money or relationships or sex any, uh, the way that God wanted them to or they perceived that God wanted them to. But now maybe they find themselves a little beat up, a little bit bruised. Uh, they've got some regrets or they've become tired of waking up each morning thinking there's got to be more to life than this. Waking up each morning feeling at times like they're their own worst enemy because they took charge of their life and things have gotten more complicated, not less. But they're afraid that maybe they've filled up their sin bucket, so to speak, so much that maybe it's too much and and they're pretty sure that maybe it's just too late for them. And we launched New Life to be a community, a church where, uh, where like Jesus, people could come with all of their baggage and discover that it's never too late and that we will love you and we will walk alongside you no matter what you've done, where you're at, or what you're struggling with. And we launched it with a heart for those that are de-churched because maybe they were judged or mistreated uh, or hurt by a church or a pastor or a group of Christians, and they've still got a crush on Jesus, but they've got this wall between them and anything church or anything labeled Christian. 
and for the unchurched, for those that grew up atheist or agnostic, or we have many that come here that they come from different faith or religious backgrounds, but there's something about Jesus that they feel is worth exploring and something about the God of Jesus, which is why we say all the time that New Life is a community. It's a church where you can belong before you believe. And even though we're still small, we are a glorious mix of every category that I've just listed and more. So we're taking several weeks to work through this topic because as a church and individually and collectively, we desperately want to be the best representation of Jesus. And what we're going to talk about this morning, I'm convinced, is the number one divider between Christians and churches. And Jesus said, if you don't get anything else right, get this one thing right. This should characterize and define you more than anything else. By this, by this, everyone will know you are my disciples. And that's our term. If you love one another, it's not your gold jewelry, it's not your gold jewelry with a cross, it's not your religious tattoo, it's not what you do on a Sunday morning, it's not your fish symbol on the back of your car, which I would never have one, nobody would ever, so, because that's just, no. And, uh, you know, it's not about how much you read your Bible or how much you pray, it's not what kind of family you were born into, or even the fact that maybe you were baptized. He said, how they are going to know is by how you love one another. And in the same conversation, he said, but let me be clear. Here's how I want you to love one another. I want you to love the way I love. I want you to love the way I have loved you. And, and that's the problem. Because when you open up Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, and you look at the way Jesus loved, it's a bit overwhelming. And at times it can feel unattainable. And at times it, it feels a bit inconsistent. And when you look at the way Jesus loved, there's a tension. And it's a tension that we are all tempted to try and resolve in our own life or as we try to be a part of a church community. We want to resolve it. When you open the New Testament and you ask the question, how did Jesus love? Here's what you discover. You discover that the way Jesus loved was messy. It was inconsistent. There are times you read one event and you read another and go, okay, that just seems unfair. At the end of the day, it's confusing because there's tension and our temptation is to try and resolve this tension. And if you don't hear anything else, hear this, that if you try to resolve the tension that's created around Jesus' love, you lose and so does everyone else around us. In fact, again, I'm convinced what we're going to talk about this morning is the number one divider of Christians and churches. And I just want you to know that from the beginning, we have worked hard to hang on to this tension, even though there's been some cost to it. For example, I did a message on our posture towards the LGBT plus community the Sunday before Easter uh, this year. And if you weren't here, I strongly recommend you get online and you watch that message. You can listen to the podcast, but I use a lot of visuals and it's just, I think it's better to watch it. But in that message, though I was clear about our posture and our position, I also didn't resolve some tension. In fact, uh, for some, it felt very unresolved. And, to add, and you add to the fact that we have some that are part of the LGBT plus community and they are exploring and even seeking to learn what it looks like to follow Jesus with their whole life. As a result, we've had people leave our community because they can't deal with the unresolved tension they feel. Or I've met people that have been bothered that we, didn't, we don't have a hard and clear, we don't have policy when it comes to alcohol and our small groups. Uh, and that's because, and the issue was that we wouldn't prohibit or we wouldn't uh, prohibit the serving or consumption of anything like beer or wine or mixed drinks like that for them that was unacceptable. 
And they're not willing to live with that kind of tension that they feel around this. Or in the early months following our launch, we did a five-week series that was specifically targeted to the atheist and the agnostic. In the first two messages of a five-part series, uh, I didn't reference a single Bible verse. Because the point of the first two messages was to clearly define the new atheism as defined by the new atheist. And so that was the focus and the starting point. We had even had some that were part of our original launch team. For them, that just, it felt, there felt dissonance. They felt, it felt unresolved. There was this tension. We've had individuals who are, and we have individuals who are seekers and, and um, explorers. They play in our band. They serve on our host team. And, and you need to know, you just need to know at times we're going to seem messy. We're going to seem inconsistent. We're going to seem unfair. At times we're going to seem a little confusing. And, and the thing is, to so you know, we're not going to change that. And here's why. Because when you open the scriptures and you take seriously the life and the actions and the teachings of Jesus, all of that is there. And there's tension. And at times, he seems forgiving. And at other times, he seems to hold everybody accountable. At times, he seems harsh. And at times, he seems kind. At times, he seems to direct, point directly at sin. And it seems like other times, he's like, it's like he's ignoring it altogether. And it's what drove people crazy about Jesus. But he was comfortable with it. He was able to minister through it, even though to us it seems messy. And I'm convinced that if we do it right, if we do it like Jesus... At times, we're going to seem inconsistent. At times, we're going to seem confusing. At times, people are going to look at me or they may look at us as a community and go, you know, I, I'm just not sure what they really believe or what they're really about. And that's okay. To get to the heart of this, we're going to, we're going to learn from John. John was one of Jesus' closest friends and followers, uh, and he was really a survivor. Because unlike the rest of the apostles who most or if not all of them were martyred, he grew to be an old man. Uh, 40, 45 years after the resurrection of Jesus, John is in his 60s or his late, 70, or his late 60s or 70s. And in that context, that was really old. Okay? And it became evident that Jesus wasn't returning just yet. Jesus said, hey, I'm coming back. And they're like, okay, well, like, today's Monday. Are you coming back Thursday or Friday? And like, it's this apparent he's not coming back anytime soon. And so, but you've got John, he's got all these memories and things that he saw and things that he heard and all these years are going by. And so he sits down and he, to write this letter and he begins his letter with this big grand picture of Jesus. And he describes him as this. He says, God sent, God sent his word, Jesus, into the world. And, and that word became flesh and he was human. And he dwelt with us, and he ate with us, and he walked among us. And John, he gives this big, beautiful picture. It's, it's, he describes it it's, it, as if God created this painting, and he painted all of these people into it, and then he painted himself into the painting so that he could interact with those people. But they re refused him and rejected him as the artist and threw him out. So you get this beautiful picture. It's just so powerful. And then in this opening section of, of this incredible document, John's letter, he gives us this terminology, the words that best capture this tension, that if you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to bump into from time to time at some point or another, and it makes it messy and inconsistent and hard. And yet, you know, you know intuitively to go to one extreme or the other is to lose something. It's to leave something out. And here are the words that he left us with. John says, the word, talking about Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
And so there's this great imagery in, in the wording that he, he camped out with us. He moved in with us. He lived with us. And when he says us, he's literally talking us, like me and my friends, the guys who ate and lived and talked with Jesus. We have seen, we've seen something you haven't seen that I'm telling you about. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. And then he gives us our words, full of grace and truth full to the brim of grace and truth. And, and, and here's the tension, because we all know what grace is and we all know what truth is. Grace says you're forgiven. Truth says you're accountable. Grace says you're fine. Grace says, truth says, no, you're broken. Grace says it's going to be okay. Truth says you need to work on it. Grace says you need to change. Truth says, or grace says, I love you no matter what. Truth says you need to change, and, and there's the tension. There's the tension that we experience, and, and, and what all of you know, especially those of you that recently you went through, we just did the I said this, you heard that, and, and some of you are doing it right now, and, and you learned your temperament. One of the things that we know is with your personality, your temperament, all of us lean one direction or the other, right? Like, like definitely the blues, man, like the melancholy, they're, they're all about like truth, 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 truth. Like, like I'm a yellow red, so I'm like grace, grace, grace. And so like you lean that way. Uh, all of you, uh, many or most of you, you were raised by two parents, not all of you. Uh, but if you think back, you were raised by two parents and one was grace and one was truth typically, right? And uh, they would argue behind closed doors as to how to raise you and which one did you like best? Mr. or Mrs. Grace, right? The one that is like, you know, hey, they're just fine and they'll be okay and they just accept you the way you are and, you know, just want you happy and comfortable all the time. But if you grew up, grew up in a great home, you had a healthy dose of, dose of both, which I did. And so I spent years, uh, and, and, and John's saying, I spent years watching Jesus. I spent year, years watching Jesus navigate the intricacies of some very difficult circumstances. And here's what I saw. Here's what I saw. I saw that Jesus was full of grace. But he was also full of truth. And see, for us, we're not comfortable with that. We live it out. No. Jesus, he was a balance. Like he was part grace and he was part truth. And John's saying, no, he was, he was full to the brim of both. And see, you're, you're like me. I, I, I like the verses that lean toward truth when I'm telling other people what to do. I like the verses that lean toward grace when it's about me. And I want to push Jesus in one direction or the other, but depending on who's being judged, right? So John said, listen, I listened to him. I watched him. And the only way I can describe it is that he was to the brim full of both grace and truth, not a balance between the two. And he says, out of his fullness, we have received, 
we have received grace in place of grace already given. And that seems like a little awkward wording, but it literally means we have received grace upon grace upon grace. In the Greek, it's the idea of a perpetual grace that Jesus poured from a bottomless pitcher of grace that it overflowed. And then to bring us a point of clarification, he says, for the law, so the Ten Commandments plus the 603 other Jewish laws that are encompassed in the, in the, in the Jewish text in the Old Testament, he says, for the law was given through Moses. The law being, this is what God expects and the specified consequences of what's to happen to you if you violate one of these laws or what you're to do if you don't meet, meet one of the expectations. Uh, the law that said, thou shalt not, thou shalt really not this. And if thou doest, you know, here's the punishment or you need to go to the temple and make a sacrifice for atonement for your sin. The law was given to us through Moses and then John makes this huge distinction. Grace and truth came literally. Came means like it was begotten. It was born. It, 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 it showed up as the full package. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, not the balance of, the fullness of grace and truth. And that's where we all want to live. We want to live in the balance based on who's being judged. And so, no, no, no. It's the full measure. And this, this is what made Jesus so messy. This is what made Jesus so confusing. In some ways, it made him unpredictable and seemingly inconsistent because everybody wanted him to lean one way or the other. But John said he brought all of it to bear with every individual in every situation and circumstance. And just when we thought he was going to go one way, he'd go the other. And when we thought he was going to go this way, he'd go the opposite direction. And he, he, he just did, wouldn't go the direction we thought. He was fully and completely grace and truth in a body. And when you, if you begin to read the Gospels again through that lens and through that filter, you will see it everywhere. One day he shows up at a well and there's a Samaritan woman that comes out and they're all alone there and he's alone with this Samaritan woman and he talks to her, which you are not supposed to do, grace. And she's like, why are you talking to me? You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. And he says, I'm thirsty. Would you use your jar to get me some water? And she's amazed that he's talking to her. And then just when things were going well, he's like, hey, why don't you go back to town and, and bring your husband out uh, to meet me as well? And she says, I, I, I don't have a husband. And he goes, I know. And then he reaches into her most painful, shameful part of her life. He's like, you've had five. And the man that you're living with now, he's, you're not even married to. And even the Samaritans, no, you don't do that. You're a five-time divorcee, and apparently you've done a horrible job when it comes to men. It's like, Jesus, did you not go to seminary? Like, you just, like, you don't, you know, I thought this was grace and truth. Like, where's the grace? And then what most of us miss, even though we may have read this, but you may have read the Bible for decades, and you may have not realized this, but he reveals something to this woman that we don't see him revealing to anyone else in all of the Gospels. He's out alone by this well. He looks her in the eyes, says, guess who I am? I haven't told anybody else this. And I've chosen you, a five-time divorcee who's shacking up with somebody that's not even their husband. I've chosen, chosen to share this with you alone. You're looking eye to eye with the Messiah. You're looking eye to eye with the Savior of the world. You're looking eye to eye with, with your Savior, and I'm able and happy to give you the water that will quench the thirst of your soul in a way that no man ever will 
or can. And, and she leaves her jar, she goes into the town, she tells all these people who she probably has no credibility with, I have met, I have met the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah of God, and as a result, the whole t- t- town comes out. And we're told that many, many people came to know and believe in Jesus, and their lives are changed forever. And then there's Matthew, the tax collector. Now, many of us, we've all gotten something in the mail with a return address that says Etern- Internal Revenue Service, and now this goes, oh, goody, this is awesome, it's like a birthday card. No, it's like... We, like, we hate tax collectors now. You really hated them back then because they were all Jewish traders. And in the first century, they had categories. There were tax gatherers and there were sinners. The tax gatherers were so bad, they couldn't even be lumped in with the sinners. And Jesus says to Matthew, while he's sitting there collecting taxes, I want you to join my group and follow me. He doesn't even tell him to quit being a tax gatherer altogether, but just, just come follow me. To which Jesus' disciples, Jesus' disciples, they're thinking what far too many 21st century Christians think about their churches or their gatherings. Hold on. If we have one of those as part of our group, if we have a tax gatherer in our group, people are going to think we approve of tax gatherers. I mean, Jesus, aren't you afraid of the people who are going to think you're approving of tax gathering and having tax gatherers uh, as one of our group? To which Jesus would have said, hey, just so you know, I got news. It's about to get worse. I mean, we're going to his home. And it's going to get worse than that. We're going to invite all of his friends. We're going to have a big sinner and tax gatherer dinner party. And it will not be Welch's grape juice that we're drinking and you think your reputation is in jeopardy now, just buckle up, because about this afternoon, about 6, 7 o'clock, the party's going to start cranking up. You're going to have no reputation in this community, because we are going to go and hang and spend time with tax gatherers and sinners. Please don't miss this, because again, as I said this morning, we're determined to do our best to live within the messiness of truth and grace, because Jesus did. And if we want to understand what Jesus meant by what he said, then we watch what Jesus did. Jesus, doesn't it concern you that it looks like you're approving of what they do? Jesus, doesn't it concern you? It looks like you're approving of their sin. To which Jesus said, what do you, what do you think I'm here for? Who do you think I'm here for? Like the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. I'm not here to guard my reputation. Then if you grew up in church, you know Jesus was crucified. He was crucified between two. We're told they were thieves. They were not thieves. They didn't crucify thieves. They only crucified the worst of the worst. These are men that could not be trusted to row in the galley of a Roman slave, uh, with other slaves on a ship. These are men that could not be trusted to be put on the slave market and, or go dig in the mines. And he's crucified between two worst of the worst. And then one of them says, we're getting what we deserve. And you would expect Jesus to go, no, don't be so hard on yourself. You've got a great heart. You know, you had an absentee dad. Don't be so hard on yourself. No, Jesus was like, yeah, you're right. You got this coming. But when you breathe your last breath and I breathe my last breath, you and I are going to be in the same place. You will be with me in paradise. Like, okay, Jesus, wait a minute. A few chapters ago, this young rich guy comes to you. He's like, I want eternal life. And you told him first, you need to go and you need to go sell everything and then come and follow me for the rest of your life. This guy gives up nothing with like one minute left on the clock and he's in? Like, that's totally unfair. 
It's completely confusing. Others would say, I've had to give up everything to follow you. And this guy with like 20 minutes left on the clock is like, from now on, I'm going to follow you. From now on, it's like 20 minutes, dude. Like, it's, and he can't even go anywhere. It just seems so incongruent. It's, it's like this completely meaningless last minute plea for mercy. And yet Jesus says to him, best, best of the best, worst of the worst, you and I, today, are going to be together in paradise. And that's the tension. And it cannot be resolved. And then maybe the most famous story, which by the way, next week, don't miss next week, the prodigal son. Just don't miss. But, but one of the most famous, maybe one of the most famous stories in all, uh, the Gospels, in the Gospel of John, it's about the woman caught in the act of adultery. And they bring her to Jesus and they say, Jesus, according to the law, you know, the law given by Moses that we live under, according to the law, she should be put to death, stoned to death. And Jesus is like, okay, stoner. And let it begin with a person that doesn't have any sin. Just don't hit me. Okay, she, she has broken God's law, so go ahead, stone her. Truth. And the person with no sin, you start. The person that's never committed adultery in their heart or looked lustfully upon another woman, you get this party started. And suddenly the law of Moses and retribution begins to break down. And they all go away. And Jesus makes everybody uncomfortable. And after they've left, Jesus looks at this woman and he doesn't go, hey, I, I know you got daddy issues. I know you got self-image issues. I know you made a mistake. I know that you're just trying to flirt at the club and it went a little too far and th- you didn't mean for things to go as far as they did. No, he does not explain away any of her choices. Rather, he says, I don't condemn you. Grace. Now, leave your life of sin. Okay, Jesus, which is it? I don't condemn you or you're a sinner. Yes. Because this is how I love. I'm in the the embodiment of grace and truth. And again, as a church, we work to get this right. I, as a follower of Jesus, I try so hard to get this right. But you know what? We don't always get it right. And we will all find ourselves in this difficult circumstance because quite honestly, to just to be a truth church or a truth Christian, honestly, in some ways would be a, a really easy because I like the truth parts, except when it's me in trouble, then I like the grace, grace church, the grace part. So we're conflicted and it's messy. And so consequently in our church, we're going to run into this situation increasingly and, and I know I keep repeating this, but it's because we have to get this right. If we want to know what Jesus meant by what he said, then we watch what Jesus did. And if you want to know what Jesus meant when Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you, then we have to look at the way Jesus loved. And do you know how he loved? He called sin, sin, and then he paid for it. And having paid for it, he declared, I don't condemn you. And since I've paid for it, and since I don't condemn you, now you're free. I want you to leave your life of sin. And if the wounds and the shrapnel of your own sin have led you to a place where you're not even sure that you're able to walk away from your sin completely, I still love you. And, and, and if someone has sinned against you, they've hurt you in such a way that it's just sent you into a spiral of self-destructive decisions and behaviors, and you're not sure how you'll ever recover from it, I love you. 
And the truth is you're a sinner. The truth is I'm a sinner. The grace is I don't condemn you. And no one will ever love you more than I do. And for some of you, that may be just why you're here this morning, to hear that said to you. Because you struggle with carrying around the constant shame and guilt and condemnation. You're so focused on the ways that you fall short of God and His standards and you're not good enough. And and this whole grace thing, it just seems too good to be true. I mean, surely there's more to it than that. And deep down at best, you think God may love me, but He doesn't like me. And at worst, God's grace can never be truly big enough to cover the ways that I have fallen short and will fall short. But if someone is willing to die for you, you don't have to question how they feel about you. And no one will ever be able to love you as much as Jesus does. And when you put your trust in him, according to Jesus, and those that witness the resurrected Jesus, something wonderful and mysterious happens. You are reconciled to God. And then you are in this permanent state of not condemned. And you need to know You need to know that. You don't win God's love. You had it from the beginning. And Paul would later write that the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience is intended to lead us to change our mind. He uses the word repent. And the idea is that I'm going to change my mind about this. I'm going to change the direction of my life. I'm going to change the direction of my decisions. I'm going to leave a life of self-sabotage. But there's this tension between grace and truth that if you ever try to resolve it, you get something that isn't Jesus. And you end up with a character of what Jesus envisioned for his body, for his followers, for his ecclesia, his movement, his church. And you don't, we don't have to look far to see the havoc and the damage and the confusion and the destruction and the impotence that results when a church opts to go to one extreme or the other. Do you know why we can't let go of truth? The reason why we need to keep saying what is true is because every sin has a built-in consequence that always ends in pain and regret. As I've said, some of you, you're not yet convinced that Jesus is who he says he was, but you've experienced what I'm talking about. You know this is true because you have regret. You've made decisions that hurt you. You've made decisions that have hurt other people, regardless of what you believe about God. And God doesn't want sin to get you. So consequently, here's what's true. God says, here's what's true. Here's how you need to live. Here's how you must treat people. Here's what you need to do with your morality and your sexual behavior. Here's how you have to be honest. Here's why you can't cheat. Here's why you can't steal. Here's why you need to confess. Here's why you need to be accountable. Because every single sin has a built-in painful gotcha, and he doesn't want it to get you. And the reason we can't let go of grace is because, to some extent, sin has already gotten us. And grace is the only way back, the only way back to the one that Jesus invites us to call our Heavenly Father. So you and I need truth. And you and I need grace. For some of you, maybe you've labeled yourself Christian, but just just to be clear, if you know what Jesus says, if you know in your heart what God wants from you, but you say, I know what he wants, but I'm not going to do that, then you may be exploring Jesus. You may be seeking Jesus, but you're not yet a follower of Jesus. 
And until you're ready to embrace the truth of Jesus, you're not in a position to receive the grace of Jesus. And only you can make that decision. And if that's you, I would love to talk with you about it. If, if Jesus is the embodiment of grace and truth, and if the church is his body, his hands, his feet, then we are the best expression of Jesus that some people, well, that anybody will ever know. An old friend of mine used to say that we are the only Bible that some people will ever read. So we have to be comfortable with the messiness and the unfairness and the inconsistency and all that stuff that goes along with managing the tension around grace and truth because the church and we are at our best when it embraces grace and truth but refuses to let go of either. I want to invite the band on up. Uh, as they're coming up, I, just, I want you to know something about me. Uh, as you get to know me, in, in seeking to take my cues from Jesus, I will always lead from grace first. If you spend any time with me, it's why we say often here that we're a community where you can belong before you believe. I'm going to lead with grace and work to build relationship first and you to get to know one another. In fact, I've, I've told uh, people who are regulars here, no, I, I play a game when I pe meet people for the first time. And that is, uh, we're going to go how, see how long we can go before you find out I'm a pastor. Because as soon as people find out I'm a pastor, whatever their history, which unfortunately is more often negative than positive, all comes to the forefront, and now that's between us. So lead with grace. So the question is, are you, are you, living, are you embracing both for your own life, which is very difficult? I mean, are you just weighed down by constant truth and the falling short of your life and I'm not good enough and I'm not like Jesus and I don't love like he should and all that to where you miss the grace of a father that says, you don't have to perform to win my love or my approval. I love you. And I did because you can't do for yourself. Now come follow me. Are you investing in the lives of the people that are in your workplace, in your school, in your, your neighbors, that for them, they're unchurched, they're de-churched. They're just kind of trying to do life and figure it out. Are you investing in their lives? And then when the opportunity presents itself to invite them, come and see. Come discover Jesus. Come, come sit with me. To love others as Jesus loved is messy and it's difficult, but we dare not let go of either grace or truth. Because there was a time in each of our lives where we needed some serious dose of truth, right? And then there are times that we need serious doses of grace. And that's going to happen again. So the band's going to reprise the song uh, they sang this morning called Good Grace. Uh, currently, it's just one of my favorite ones. and I love it. Do not let your heart be troubled. Because of what God's done for you, hold, hold your head up high. And fear no evil. Fix your eyes on this one truth. God is madly in love with you. Let the praise go up as the walls come down. Let's pray. God, uh, you are so good. And Father, I pray for each of us in our own pursuit of you that you would truly help us to, to, to get a grip on the, the greatness of your grace. We typically can see the truth deep down with ourselves. Man, the idea that you could just love us and forgive us 
Sometimes it's, it's hard. It's hard for us to figure ourselves. So I pray for everyone that is struggling with that, God, that you would help them to, to break free from that grip. And Father, for those that, that struggle, lean more in the truth towards others, that God, that you would help them to, to feel the compassion and the love and the, the patience and kindness and forbearance that leads to life transformation. So Father, I pray that for our community. God, we, we really want to do things in a way that makes you happy and pleases you in this city. And God, we know it's going to be messy. And we just pray for your wisdom and discernment in all of that as we work to see Jesus and your spirit transform lives. And it's the name of Jesus.